about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there, was no, uh, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord, go- Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a tree in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of the land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are there also. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat eat from it, you will certainly die. And we're going to continue reading from Titus, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. Okay, friends, we are thinking about our work between grace and glory, working in the Lord's name. And last week, we we thought a lot about how the grace that God has shown us in Jesus instructs us in our work and how it teaches us to say no to desires and yes to a good path and makes us eager to do what is good in all of our work, in a whole bunch of different ways. Now, to follow that up this week, what I want to ask uh, as a question is, well, what is good work? What is this good that we can be eager to do in the midst of the things that the Lord has given to us? So we'll explore that this week. Now, I think this is a really interesting topic in modern work because so many companies and types of work have taken up noble social and environmental aims. There's a sense in which doing good is now part of the marketplace in a really interesting way. Most companies these days, if you know this, have to have what is called an ESG statement. A sense and understanding of how they as a company influence the environment, 
the social world around them and a sense of how their governance works and is actually a good thing. This is a good thing in and of itself. Businesses need to think about how they're intertwined with the world and whether their presence in society is good or bad and what it's doing and be held accountable to that. That's a good thing. These statements don't normally do anything very useful, though, unfortunately. Most companies have them now. In the end, they are little more than a rubber stamp to ensure that people will give them investment. But it is very interesting that in the psychology of companies now is this longing to do good. And it's not all talk. I don't know if you heard this week about the founder of Patagonia and the huge decision he just made. Patagonia is worth $3 billion, and he decided just announced last week, to make the Earth the major shareholder of Patagonia. This is literally. Instead of exploiting natural resources to make shareholder returns, we are making the Earth our only shareholder. Instead of going public, you could say we're going purpose. Instead of extracting value from nature and transforming it into wealth for investors, we will use the wealth of Patagonia creates to protect the source of all wealth. Fascinating. 99.5% of profits now go toward climate change action from Patagonia. Incredible uh, decision that they have made as a company with real substance to it. Now, the question is, in a world where these kind of things are happening, both real and kind of not real, how do we discern what is good? Is it any different to this? Or is it the same as this? In what way does the gospel inform us in what good work actually is? And how? That's what we want to look at this evening. Four things. First thing is this. What we learn in Titus is that good work reflects God's love for all humanity. Good work reflects God's love for all humanity. In these two verses from the beginning of Titus 3, there's one kind of central command given for how Christians are to live in society. Uh, Paul tells Titus, remind the people, because they're going to forget all the time, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. This is a parallel command to the command to slaves, which was in chapter 2 that we looked at a while ago, to just get on with civic involvement and, and honoring those above them. But what's really interesting is how he fills out that subjection and obedience. It's filled with this fascinating posture. To be ready to do whatever is good. I'll come back to that in the next point. To slander no one. To be peaceable and considerate. And always to be gentle toward everyone. This is a statement of of what those who trust and know the gospel ought to be like in society. This is what we are to be known as. To be known at those who don't slander others even when the mud is being thrown around. To be peaceable. Literally, it talks about not quarreling, not being a brawler. Not being those who stir up unnecessary pain and fights in society. Those who are known of being considerate. The the word considerate is about not always getting what you want, but yielding to what others need. And to be exhibiting, to be publicly showing, it says in the original, gentleness toward everyone, all people. This is the posture of believers in the public world. This is what we're summoned to be. This is what the Lord longs for us to be. 
As Calvin sums it up beautifully, he says in this verse, Paul is undoubtedly encouraging us to be kind toward our neighbors in all we do. That's our posture. But the reason we're given it is just after it, in the bit we didn't read. When Paul describes our journey, he describes that we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. And we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's us at ground zero as humanity. Enslaved, being hated, and hating. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. It's really interesting what Paul is doing here. He's just told them to be subject, to take on this posture toward their society. But what if their society doesn't like them? What if they get slandered and they get fought against and their consideration is taken too far and their gentleness is scorned? Paul says, you know, we all were like that. But then God appeared with kindness and love. And the word for love here is used nowhere else in the New Testament. It's a unique use of the word philanthropia, from which we get the word philanthropy, which is generally about giving toward good causes. It literally means a love of humanity, a love for all humanity. When we were enslaved and stuck in hatred, God showed up with immense, overwhelming love for all of us. And so we, in our relationship to our rulers and to our wider society are to reflect that love. Good work is an act of loving neighborly service in the same way God appeared in love to us. That is a definition of good work, a reflection of that. You know, unfortunately, we are not particularly known for this posture right now. I was at Sydney Uni a few weeks ago and I was talking to a couple of students, and I just said, just give me the, the ground level of what, what people think about God when they come to uni, when they're starting uni right now. What's it like? Who don't know church. And I was talking to a philosophy student, and he said, you know, they do not care about proofs for God, the philosophical, intellectual proofs of God's existence. They don't care about that at all. What they think is that the church is bad, perhaps even evil. And that therefore God must necessarily be the same. Really awful, tragic statement. But unfortunately, I think that is maybe where we're at. But Paul is summoning us to begin something different. To be known differently. To be seen with gentleness and consideration. To reflect the love that he has in who we are and what we do. And this is not just a posture, he explains, but it, he gives us a guiding line of action. We are to be ready to do whatever is good for our city. I love how that's the first thing he says after saying, be subject and be obedient. Because you imagine something dry and dull and difficult, but anything but that. He says, our relationship, our purpose, our place in any society, in any community, in any workplace, in any city is to be ready to spring toward doing good. I love how it is, whatever is good. It's not like a, a set of things that are good. Just whatever is good, wherever you are, whatever workplace you're in, 
whatever thing you're involved in, whatever problems are happening, whatever is good, just do it. We are to be those who are pursuing and doing publicly good things. Now, just read it in context for a second. The context is our relationship to rulers and society. This is not doing private individual acts of good. That's a good thing to do, to just love a specific neighbor. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about good that builds up the city, that builds up society, that builds up the way things work around us, That's a, that responds to the, the structural and communal needs that exist, not just in the individual ones. And notice too, and we make this mistake all the time, uh, we often assume that if we want something to change in society, we need politics to change. We need the government to shift in their policy and in their actions. But the New Testament never tells us to engage in that way in particular. It tells us to get on with what is in front of us in our spheres. It has a vision of societies that are knit together by people doing lots of different things. You know, this city is knit together by truck drivers and chains of logistics, actually. That much of what we enjoy, Fergus is one of those, if you want to talk to one this evening, who make sure food gets places and medicine gets to hospitals, they run our city. They knit it together in a fascinating and wonderful way. They are doing a communal good. And we are to be ready to do whatever is good in different spheres of life and build up our city. Let me give you an example. This is Dave Hattaj. This is not the best book of, on kind of faith and work going around, but it is very important and very important because most books are written from a very white-collar perspective, and this one's written from a very blue-collar one. Now, Dave runs something called Edgerton Gears. They make gears. If you don't know what a gear is, that is what it is. If you're wondering why they're important, then if, just think about anything made anywhere by a machine, right? They all need gears, right? Gears make everything you own and everything you need, right? And gears need to be made with specific precision within a half millimeter to do their job. And that's what they do. They, they make gears, a wonderful part of our society you don't know enough about. Now, he inherited this company from his father. It was in a really bad place, had a toxic culture. Uh, he almost got burned out trying to turn it around, but eventually he did. And they got to a good place. They were functioning well as a company. But then he started to notice a problem. Everyone in the shop making gears was getting old toward retirement, and there was no young persons coming in. And this was the same for all the other gear shops in Wisconsin and surrounds in that part of America. So what he decided to do was go, well, what's happening with young people these days? And so he went to a local high school, and he looked at their shop class, their design and technology class, their woodworking, you know, metalworking kind of class. And it was a complete disaster. There were no tools. It was like completely underfunded. No one really, it was a joke, basically. And so he went into the principal and he said, okay, I would like all of your worst students. I want the ones who are dropping out who feel like they're going nowhere, who you can't handle in any other class. I would like them, and I'm going to run a new shop class. And what he did was create this uh, curriculum called Craftsmen with Character. And he took all of these young people uh, who were feeling left out and forgotten and were probably not headed down great paths, 
And he got them to think about their families and the dysfunction in parts of their society and confront difficult things at first. And then taught them a set of values about hard work and about doing things and about the fact they could contribute to God's world. He invited them into the shop to make gears with other senior gear makers and they spent time working alongside them. At the end of the, the, the course, he offered a number of scholarships and some of them would come and work in the shop. Just pay attention to what he's doing for a second. It's a wonderful thing. There are so many goods that he saw in front of him to do. There needed to be more people making gears. There were young people who had no purpose, who weren't going anywhere, and they didn't think they were worth anything. And so he was ready and responded and did something good. For the sake of society, that they'd have gears. For the sake of these young kids. And along the way, a number of them become Christian because they work with Christian workers in some of his shop and they find their way to the Lord. This is a wonderful example of what work can be like, good work. That is a love for all humanity, for our cities. But the thing we need to think about here is that this, what this shows us in the end and why it is good and a deeper point we need to grab hold of from Genesis on the way through here is that what made this work good, and what makes all work good, is that it's also a reflection of the good world God has made. Now, we need to go to Genesis to make this point, because as, as, as Beck read out for us, you have this picture of a, a creation that is not yet in full spring, the rain hasn't come, and no one's there to work the ground. That's what it says in verse 5. But then in verse 8, it describes how the Lord God had made a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he'd formed. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This is the origin story of work in Scripture. It does not happen after the fall. It happens pre-fall. Work is a good that God has given to us. He has placed us in his world to work it and to take care of it. Those two things together are really fascinating. You know, in In verse 5, it says, one of the reasons there are no plants is no one has done work on the ground. There's a good thing to be brought out of God's good creation, but it requires someone to do something. At the same time, it just needs to be taken care of. Creation is already good, but it needs to be kept, protected, kept on its course and brought to its full cultivation. All of work is this. In some way, all work, despite we're on the other side of the fall, is working with God's good world, trying to work it and keep it. And all work, in some even small way, participates in the good things of creation. The reason for this is, as we read in Proverbs 3, that by wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided and the clouds let drop the dew, which is to say that creation all of the way down, in every aspect, in every realm, is knitted together, is formed by God's wisdom. It's dripping with it. All of creation can't help but be formed by a wise and good God. And that's why in every single workplace, in every single task, there are good things to do. Because it's a good world that God made. 
in Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified. And it says, by me, wisdom, kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, that's wisdom, princes, governor, nobles, all who rule on the earth. Notice how it didn't say Christian kings and Christian princes and Christian nobles. All politicians who govern wisely and well, governed by what? By God's wisdom. Not because they know God necessarily, a lot of them don't, but because they belong to God's good world. And it is possible in God's good world to find good things to work with and for. It's why we're not surprised by, you know, the guy who runs Patagonia doing a great thing. Because whether he knows the Lord or not, I actually have no idea. He is a part of God's good world. And he can see that the protection of that world environmentally is a good. He doesn't need to know the Lord to know that. He's in the good world. And every, every industry has this. There is a good way to form children in schools. There's a good way to, to uh, have everyone's money in a bank in a way that will be distributed back well and safely and protect them from disaster and ensure there's justice in society. There are good ways to form lines of logistics for products and make sure that there, there are no loggages on lettuce and things like that. Every industry participates in some way in the good things that God is doing. It's worth asking the question, what is the good part of creation that you are tending in your work? What are you working and keeping? What is the good thing that the Lord's placed in your hands? Let me give you another example. This is the best example of faith and work kind of coming together I've found in the last few years. It was made by someone on staff, which is kind of funny. Uh, Phil Walker-Harding, who's a cottage church pastor in the afternoon, has just launched a company with his wife called Joey Games. If you missed the Kickstarter, then that's your problem. But, you know, you can buy board games from them later for Christmas, maybe. Uh, they've found this thing called Joey's Games. Now, Phil is, a, to be honest, an internationally renowned, award-winning board game maker, okay, just to get the context right. He's just started an Australian company uh, uh, creating Australian guard board games with Australian artists around Australian themes, Australian birds and plants and things. But get, get this, look at, the, look at the good that they're participating in in this company. We want to share our love for people and the planet through playing games. We believe play is an essential part of living a healthy, balanced and restful life. Our games are designed to create meaningful connections between kids and adults as they play together. Can you see it here? Board games, the making of board games. What good does it participate in? In the building of meaningful relationship and trust. You can build a friendship network through playing games. You can build genuine love and trust between people. You can build a city through board games. You can build up, us up to be meaningfully connected in a way you can't do in other ways. And so as they make games and as they sell them, they are participating in a good thing, promoting a good thing that's part of God's world. Every industry does this. I want you to find it for yours. Your good work reflects a good part of God's creation. But last thing for today, and this is the practical point. And that is to say that we learn to do good 
We learn it. We don't just know how to do it. We learn it as we seek to provide for urgent needs. Now, this is something I just saw this week, actually, at the, the very end of Titus that I hadn't seen before. But after the whole way through Titus, kind of doing this whole encouragement toward being this sort of presence in society and being eager to do what is good, Paul gives Titus a practical place for the church to begin right at the end of the letter. He says this, Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. So getting to the end of his letter, exhorting them to do good, to do all these things, he says, oh, I know where you can begin. I know where you can begin. Zenos and Apollos, they're coming. They'll, they'll lack things. Why don't you give them everything they need? And by doing that, you know what? They'll, they'll start to learn. They'll start to learn how to provide for urgent needs, how to, how to see something right in front of them and to start to do good. Because the doing of good is not something we innately know. It's something we learn. Being discipled there, the word learn, you need to be formed in it. Learn how to do it. And the way you learn is by responding to what is right in front of you, to the urgent things, the things that need provision. When you work in tomorrow, ask yourself the question, what, does, what urgently needs to change today that's really small? One really small, simple thing that I could do that is good. And then tomorrow, another one. And then tomorrow, maybe a bigger one. And the learning of to do good, habitually over time, in as we don't just kind of dream of these big things that we could do in the future or the big products and logistics we could shift in our work, but just what is one small, urgent thing in a person, in a process, in a, in a project you could respond to tomorrow, prepared and ready to do what is good, with a posture of gentleness and consideration, peaceable, not slandering. You are the beginning of the shift in the tone of the way believers are seen in our city if you do. Now, if I'm honest, I'm never eager and prepared to do what is good. I'm eager and prepared to hang out on my own in my own comfortable, comfortable place. You know, none of us really are. None of us need to be, actually, at the beginning. You're the only person who was eager and prepared to do good. Was that Lord Jesus, wasn't he? Who, when we were stuck in hatred and enslaved under sin... He showed up with a love for all of us, regardless of how good or bad we are. His love is not dependent upon how good you are tomorrow or how much good you do in your lifetime. He showed up unannounced, eager and prepared to love you. And maybe, friend, it's to the extent that you start to eye that and see that and start from there that your heart will grow warmer and warmer and you'll be prepared to do good as well. So go tomorrow. See what's urgent and remind yourself that he's prepared to love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.